Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you another art monthly talk show on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am happily joined by Morgan Quaintance to discuss two texts he's written in the March 2023 issue of Art Monthly. That's issue 464. And um, hi, Morgan. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you know, you're just back from New York, aren't you? Uh, showing some of your work, I think, at um, MoMA. Yeah, yeah. Just back from New York. Yeah, yeah. Just, Which just is over tremendous, jet lag. Tremendous. Um, but uh, therefore, I hope you're over jet lag and things. It's been a couple of days, so I hope you are. Um, basically, the feature we're going to talk about, first of all, and then we're going to talk about a review. And, and the feature... Um, is called in the magazine Care v Competition. It's on page five. And um, basically, we begin it by saying um, that you identify a contradiction deep at the heart of art world rhetoric surrounding issues of care. Now, um, I feel that probably it's not just a problem at the heart of rhetoric, is it necessarily? No, um, no, no. But I suppose uh, action follows uh, the way uh, action follows rhetoric, I suppose. So action follows um, the, the language used to uh, describe uh, attitudes and types of behaviour in the same way that, you know, the Museum Association not too long ago released this new declaration of what it was that a museum is. So essentially, the museum releases a statement which you could um, uh, identify as rhetoric, rhetoric, and then yeah. following that release of a statement, then the behaviour comes from it. So I suppose, yes. in a way, I am doing both things. I am looking at the language used to describe behaviour or to, to describe this new projection of itself, and then I'm analysing the behaviour that flows from the declaration. Yeah, no, they're definitely linked, and importantly so. You, you, you begin by... Um, a little bit of history on the glass ceiling um, and then go on from there. Why did you start with that? I guess what I wanted to do was to try to uh, furnish readers with a kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a visual metaphor for how I see this, the state of play being for artists and art professionals in the field. So, so maybe if we can make a distinction between... <clears throat> Those who are like creating culture within the within the within the um, the cultural sector or within the uh, the art world, so to speak, and then the let's say another tier of um, curators, commissioners, uh, directors, and other arts professionals who are really about facilitating and distributing that cultural produce. And I wanted to use the, this um, uh, uh, visual metaphor of the glass ceiling um, in order to draw attention to what I felt was actually happening below it. <laughs> Usually when the, the metaphor of the glass ceiling is evoked, it's almost like this sort of pyramid structure where uh, it's, everyone's like neatly stacked upon each other. And then just before the glass ceiling, there's this like specific figure who will gain access to what we would call like a flattened meritocratic field. They would gain access to that, but for one trait, you know, for example, maybe they're a woman or maybe they're um, a person of color or maybe they're queer um, now that's the, the initial idea of the uh, um, the glass ceiling. What what lies below it are these people who are disenfranchised or disadvantaged by some sort of singular feature that leads to their being discriminated in some way. Then, <clears throat> following the essay by someone called Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, the essay is called "Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex," and this was published in 1989. <clears throat> and Kimberly Crenshaw basically. I think she was like a legal scholar or I mean, I don't know, the legal scholar basically means someone who's studying the law as probably as well as practicing it. But this essay really births this notion of intersectionality, right, that people are using so much today, which is to basically draw attention to the fact that discriminations aren't um, single line, but they're actually compound experiences. So, you know, someone could be discriminated against because they are uh, a person of colour, but also they might be queer and they might be a woman at the same time. So it's not just a, this sort of singular um, a line of discrimination. It's something that can affect somebody in multiple ways. Now, once I'd 
furnish the reader with this brief history of like the glass ceiling and what lies below it. Uh, I wanted to talk about how the art world is sort of trying to approach um, levelling the field or making it more egalitarian, more democratic. And what I was saying they're doing is like inverting this this pyramid of the disadvantaged underneath the glass ceiling. Essentially, what I mean by inverted is just turning it around, right? So the idea is that this pyramid below the glass ceiling, at the top of it, there's this person who just has one trait, right? So maybe they're a woman or they're a person of colour or or they're queer and that is stopping them from getting through to this 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 terrain of meritocratic terrain and at the bottom sits the compound person who has a much more difficult time accessing uh basic um uh, opportunities within the sector and i was arguing that within this sort of new regime of uh um a kind of politically conscious sector what they're trying to do what they've done is kind of spun the pyramid over, turned it over so that the people at the top of the pyramid are the ones who are most uh, afflicted by this sort of compound discriminatory system. And then at the bottom is this person now who would have got through, but uh, for one specific trait. Now, um, what happens at this point is that people on the right, so to speak, then start going on about how people people this we've gone here it's like pc gone mad i'm not talking about any of that all i'm trying to do is to say that rather than them rather than the sector doing some work to create a more horizontal field in which in which um opportunity uh, and existence is more level they've just created a new uh, basis for a type of competition to exist and a type of competition or a type of hierarchy to exist in which disenfranchised people are basically pitted against each other. And um, the way that this is happening, uh, I delve into after I've just tried to show this through this notion of a metaphor where like underneath the glass ceiling, we're kind of um, now being pitted against each other by a different um, set of hierarchical criteria that the art world has kind of enacted in order to redress its ills or to redress the things that it had done improperly previously. So, 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 um, for instance, something like the Care Manifesto, written by the Care Collective, is that's that's something that would back up this approach. Well, I guess like maybe the approach is a response to the overarching discourse of care. So yeah. what, what's actually emerged after, let's say, the mid-2015s where politics suddenly wasn't being shut out anymore uh, and that, you know, if you were talking about being <clears throat> queer or a person of colour or a woman, suddenly institutions were interested. What what has come in at the same time is this, this discourse about care is that, you know, maybe <clears throat> we should be focusing on helping each other <laughs> and trying to make each other feel better as opposed to making each other feel worse. And I suppose this is indirect uh, opposition to like the, the sort of neoliberal ethos that is that pervades everything in society, which is just like, it's the individual, it's everybody for themselves. And like, you should only really be concerned about your own welfare and your own progression towards success. I'm saying that maybe the sector's response <clears throat> to this emerging discourse of care has been uh, let's say less than subtle and it's been um, uh, a kind of clumsy clunky um, strategy which is this inversion that I was talking about N now on the surface like in the first instance um, that might seem like it's a kind of radical move and in some ways if it was a form of care maybe you could call it palliative right so they're, they're sort of dealing with like the appearance of the symptoms or they're dealing with the surface of the thing without getting to the problem, right? So by doing this inversion, they suddenly seem to be able to be giving space to people who they weren't before. But instead of changing the competitive nature of the system or changing what I'm trying to identify later in the article as a kind of the structural cruelty of the sector, they've simply tried to give space to the people who they identified as being more cruelly affected by indifference before 
and that the, the remedy for this indifference is, is, is attention. But why that might solve one aspect of the problem, it still leaves the competitive and the cruel nature of the sector intact. And so that's what I wanted to address, this sort of clumsy um, institutional response to the discourse of care uh, that has taken place. It, it is quite a hard thing to get right, uh, presumably. I mean, but, and, and obviously they're giving priority to people who didn't get priority before which is a, not a bad thing however the competitive i'm just i'm just summarizing really but your com the competitive is the problem in a way do, do you um i mean it's something which obviously you know all all artists live with in a way unless they choose to to, to particularly opt out and step sideways and create yeah, now, some other uh, other way of not being really involved with these yes givers, and givers. This, this is the important thing matt that what we have to say is that like we this has been the status quo for many many years for decades that the fact that we're all trying to gain access to limited resources but things have changed like resources are more limited now than they've ever been <laughs> So it's not it's more difficult for an artist, say, to, to say I'm opting out of the system and I'm just going to run an artist led space, um, function independently, uh, maintain my funding by uh, applying to Arts Council England or else living off the dole that just or squatting. But none of those options really exist anymore. And what I was trying to just discuss is just to say um, what makes it even more cruel is that. This idea of that, that giving space to people who were shut out, I think is a little bit of a, um, it's a little bit of a uh, falsity because essentially what you're doing is giving people access to a competitive system who maybe didn't have it before. So essentially what makes this crueler, I would argue, than what was happening before is that you're specifically asking for people who have had experiences of of um of discrimination and vulnerability and in order for them to access the system they have to declare those experiences and they have to in some ways prove to the system that they are at a disadvantage in order to be recognized and in order to gain access to the advantages that lay beyond uh, a couple of things that i've identified in the article one of them is just the general application process for something and the other one is let's say the 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 the, um, the system of competitions. So that's the that's really the key thing to to identify in this this in what I'm trying to discuss here. Because really, yeah, that is the natural response. What what's wrong with you? Why are you being? Why are you upset about this? Artists have had to do this for years. We've always struggled with difficulty. We've always had to apply for things. We've always had to move around. And hey, if you don't like the system just function independently. The fact is, it's really difficult to function independently now. I would almost say impossibly, unless you have the, the financial means to do it. But the fact of the matter is, most of the people who are operating within this new system don't have the financial means to do it and are operating from a place of vulnerability. So essentially, they're being encouraged to take part in a system that still is built on the same uh uh, the same uh, sort of principles of access that functioned before when there was much more um, room for manoeuvre. And I would argue that it was probably easier to gain access to maybe the promise of employment or funding that was uh, dangled previously. I mean, we can probably get into specifics a bit more, but you know, Dan Ward published this essay, uh, which was kind of like a short book publication called The Politics of Production a while ago. And in the book that he had an application that uh, the filmmaker Liz Rhodes had put in for funding from Arts Council England. And essentially the application, she was just explaining that she wanted to work with shapes and colour, you know, and it's like you can't really do that now. I mean, it's, you have to demonstrate the community that you're engaging with. You'd have to discuss, um, you know, where you're coming from, uh, what it's almost like you'd have to function as a mini mini institution enacted by an individual it's almost like you you're no you're no longer able to just function as an artist who has a practice-based interest 
you have to be a kind of mobile uh, social worker, education department, curator, community engager, and participatory artist before you've even got to the question of aesthetics or if you're going to actually pay yourself. So, you know, I, I think it was just important to identify that even though it appears on the surface that things have changed like significantly because suddenly um, space is being given to, uh, in inverted commas, space is being given to people who previously didn't have it, you know, we're still operating in a system that functions on this basis of cruelty and exclusion. We've got a new hierarchy in place, but that new hierarchy just means that people who've been disenfranchised are now the ones who appeared against each other. And the criteria that they're supposed to demonstrate in order to gain access is the fact that they've been so destitute and lacking in opportunity. Well, also that you you do say that, um, tell me if I don't say it right, but that you, the people who now are applying and being invited to apply or encouraged to apply and, and then have to do all the things you just listed, which are outside of and pre, not aesthetic things or not, you know, not necessarily art things, they are in a way the people who least should have to do those things because they are the people who were in most need before and didn't cause the problem. Yeah, I guess like in, and, and I, in some ways, you know, just I wouldn't want to leave with an argument like that because it sounds a little bit okay. basic. But once you, <laughs> it's true, you know, once you start to think about it, the sort of unfairness of this new re new regime comes into focus because you think and if you just take directors for example now there's a new there's a kind of active push now to employ directors who are people of color or come from let's say minority groups they're women or queer people or that, that those people who've been previously disenfranchised now the thing is it's not like they're entering a system where there's profligate spending and like funding is available and they're and um, the support from Arts Council is generous and forthcoming. They're entering a world of cuts. They're entering a world where they're being pushed towards um, these public-private partnerships. It's like the worst moment, really, to be a director of an institution. You have to answer for so much stuff. Now, let's say in the, in the 2010s or, or the 2000s or even the later 1990s, when there was loads of money around, capital builds were happening everywhere, and you know people didn't really have to answer for much i remember i was i used to work for an organization called icon gallery <clears throat> towards the end of the the 2010s sorry the 2000s into the 2010s so from 2009 <clears throat> to 2011 and their exhibition budgets were massive and you know every exhibition had a catalog they had this like storage space full of catalogs that people hadn't bought and <clears throat> You know, and one way you could look at it as that's profligate spending. And another way you could look at it as it's an ambitious program that is giving the artists that they're displaying the opportunities commensurate with where they are in their careers. Like, why shouldn't exhibitions have catalogues? We know they don't sell that well, but why shouldn't the institution store them? But these are things that I would imagine are like unimaginable for, for directors working at the moment. You know, and I just felt like, it does feel slightly unfair that after you've been trying to gain access to something, you gain access at the toughest moment and at the point where you're really going to have to answer for the ills of maybe previous generations. That, that that was kind of what I was trying to say, but you say it much better. Thank you. And and in terms of competition, application, and when the pandemic occurred, you say rightly that there, that there were some changes made by some of the larger prizes to seemingly spread the awards more um, i mean they're obviously still limited to a very small number of people so it's not but there was a sort of approach change perhaps yeah so if it's all right what i'd like to do maybe is just like before we talk about competition is to talk about the application process so ba basically in the article once i do this thing of um of a what do you call it of talking about this glass ceiling and this different metaphor and the inversion of the pyramid and then discuss this this notion of like <clears throat> how it's not really working as as well as they'd hoped i try and like just um uh talk about that concretely by looking at specific two specific examples the first is the application process and the second one is competitions 
So just to talk briefly, if that's all right, about, yeah, no, um, sure, the app- sure. about the application process. So I was arguing that this is like a, a, stru- a structural feature of the art world. In order, so basically, in order for anyone to gain access to, let's say, to art, to the cultural sector, the, that is the UK art world, you have to apply. And it begins from university right up to when somebody's an established artist who still is having to apply for opportunities like, um, is it the fourth plinth? Is it the four, it's called the fourth plinth, yeah. isn't it? The fourth plinth, you know, we have to apply. These things have to be applied to. And I was arguing that um, the application process is itself cruel. What I mean by that is that it's the kind of formalised and it's formalized because you have to do the application, but we don't talk about it as a competition, but we all know it is because you're pitted against everybody else that has applied for this thing. So you know that um, your hopes are pinned on an opportunity and that that you're in competition with other people and that there's only really a 1% chance of you winning because there's only one person who gets carried through. I was arguing that at let's say above the glass ceiling in this notional world where it's all meritocratic and everybody's got a decent amount of money and is okay living that having this application process wasn't the greatest but fine we all understand but now applications are asking for different things like i was explaining before the applications aren't simply asking to tell you for you to tell you about um, for you to tell them about like your idea you've also got to talk about where you're from maybe like the uh how much your parents earned when they were growing up or maybe um how did your parents go to university you've got to talk about your gender and you've got to talk about maybe your sexuality you've got to talk about your race and also your project itself has to be coming from a position where you're speaking to specific societal ills that i'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with this but I'm saying you have to also acknowledge that what is being judged now is not necessarily just the artwork, but the person. Essentially, the application that's being put forward is someone giving you a profile of themselves. So where previously the rejection of an application might produce some like emotional distress in somebody who feels that maybe their artwork wasn't good enough, but maybe that could be gotten over pretty quickly, Uh, relatively quickly now it's a rejection of yourself it's a rejection of who you are because essentially what you're doing in your application is outlining a profile of yourself so I was trying to argue that we really need to if the art world is presenting itself as like a new caring sector and this is new language it's not always talked about itself as, as concerned with care we really need to look at the fundamental structures that exist for gaining access and, I, and, you know, you've got to think about it in terms of how institutions felt about themselves. You know, they got a bit of a taste of this not too long ago when they were waiting for the for the results of uh, the uh, national portfolio funding. Right. And what Arts Council did was announce that there was going to be a delay they, because it was supposed to fall on a specific day. It didn't. And then they came like four or five days later, something like that. And, you you know, you could see the indignation. But that the indignation that had to be buried under polite language because they also didn't want to, you know, imperil their chances of getting funding by being criti- by criticizing Arts Council England in public. And I thought this is the experience that artists go through all the time. Organizations constantly delay giving you the results of applications that you put in. There's nothing you can say to them if, if you if this rejection then happens to you. You have to swallow all of this like bitterness. And then present yourself as if you're uh, just happy to be nominated, happy to be in the running and everything is doing fine. Now, it's like you said, Matt, this has always been the case. It's always been the case. You know, that's why you had the stuckists, right? They came out, I would argue, out of a type of bitterness at being excluded from a Turner Prize that didn't like acknowledge what they called, in inverted commas, traditional painting, whatever. But today it's different. This thing of being judged on who you are, on how much your parents earn, on whether or not you're neurodiverse, <laughs> you know, on 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 the like political efficacy of your practice. It's just they're different terms. And I felt that it was important really to draw attention to the cruelty of this situation and to maybe argue that we should move away from, you know, one of the, the solutions would be for us to move away from this emphasis on the person. 
this emphasis on who the person is applying and this emphasis on the person having to demonstrate how underprivileged they are. So, you know, like, uh, because if you're going to do that and then say, uh, sorry, we don't really need you, that to me is unnecessary cruelty. And the fact, the fact of the matter is, you know, if, if you, the, what's happening at the moment is like, if you're receiving applications in the thousands, you know, I think I cited one organization that received 1,200 applications uh, for 22 available places. That's, that's um, sort of grossly inflated uh, figures there that I would argue are kind of unprecedented. And this isn't just, I mean, they're unprecedented, but they're sort of mirrored also in the, the, the economic climate. I mean, people are trying to find places to live and they're going to look at rooms and there's like 100 people lined up to look at a room. So we're living in the kind of unprecedented times that are, that are, um, are difficult in new and unusual ways. And I felt like this application process with the emphasis on the person is just producing cruel effects uh, needlessly. So, in so um, you know, sorry. no, no, go for it. So I, I mean, I could talk about the competition aspect next, but you had the question. So maybe I'll let you, I'll let you. No, ask no, no, well, really, really not at all. Just you're doing exactly what I want you to do because it, because it's, you're going through the article as as you wrote it and it was written in a careful way and I th so do go competitions fine yeah so what i wanted to do then was to say okay if we have this like informal competition that happens in the applications where we all know we're in competition with other people but nobody says it you know unless you're just having a drink with someone at the end of the day and saying i can't believe this person got a job and i didn't or i can't believe this person got the residency and i didn't or i can't believe this person got this funding and i didn't we had the actual competition system, right? So a prize. So we'll talk about a Turner just because I mentioned it before and it's it's really simple. Everybody understands what it is. So you have something like the Turner Prize and maybe that, that, that represents something of a pinnacle in this country of like maybe one of the most prominent prizes, not necessarily the most um, money that's given, but certainly the most, uh, arguably the most exposure. Um, so... So you have something like uh, the Turner Prize and the Turner Prize functions in this way. You have uh, a list of artists who are nominated by a pool of people who walk around the art world and look at people and, and, and determine who, who should be brought forward. And then those artists uh, form a shortlist. Uh, and the shortlisted artists, I guess, are shortlisted for a number of uh, months. There's an exhibition that happens. And then at the end of that exhibition, somebody wins the Turner Prize and the other people don't. <laughs> and for me, I felt that competitions are cruel. <laughs> like, why necessarily do we need to have competitions in a sector that really the, the merits and, or, or faults of an artwork, there is no objective criteria for the evaluation of what is or isn't good. You're really talking about subjective um, judgments made by panels of people who themselves have no criteria. You know, they're really just sort of um, fumbling around in the dark for or for some sort of um, strategy of really conferring quality. I would argue I have been on panels before, and you know, it's arguable that sometimes you might be able to say, "Well, this person's work is more sophisticated," and you might feel that you all objectively arrived at that, but still. It is a subjective process. It's not. Um, it's not like uh, gymnastics. It's not hundred meters race, is it? It's not hundred meters. No, of it's not. No, it's not. Gets Actually, over the line but, first. But there's a number of ways we could look at competitions. Like, first of all, was, you know, yeah. You, you, first of all, it's that thing of publicly the public process of it, the public process of being shortlisted and then losing. Why? Why necessarily do we have to do this? Why is there a ceremony where you have to be invited, the winners disclose, and the losers have to stay there and just deal with the fact that they've lost and like smile for the cameras or stand with the winner because the people know who's won before the ceremony. Just tell the person who's won, why do you need to have a ceremony? Well, mm -hmm. the ceremony needs to happen because it's the, it's, it's the thing that brings more like um, what I would call like... Uh, um, it, uh, um, uh what's the what's the word prestige? yeah prestige it would bring that prestige those like immaterial returns to an organization it would it would bring attention to the organization and allow this level of regard to grow and it would also sort of 
confer a kind of status because it would say this organization is one that's respected enough to make these sorts of judgments to crown someone worthy enough to be um, given this privileged position. So really, we can say these ceremonies don't exist for the artists. They don't exist for the cultural sector. They exist for the organization. So that in that sense, we don't really need them. We could just do away with them. <laughs> and the, the, the second thing is to say, um, uh, and, and I, I, the Turner Prize has made some progress in this sense, is that usually winners receive uh, some sort of monetary reward and the losers don't. The losers aren't even compensated for the time that they spent uh, being on the shortlist. And so, so therefore sort of giving their cultural capital to the organization by being, by legitimizing the whole prize process. Because essentially competitions are just the result of people sitting in a room somewhere saying, I, I would argue like, how do we as an organization increase our profile? Why don't we do a prize? I would argue that that, that, I mean, I might be, I, I would be fairly confident in saying like 50, 60% of the time, that's a major reason why they do it. It'd probably be a reason I, why they keep it going now. But yes. there could also be a reason why they might choose a particular artist because it would, by choosing a particular one of a kind of person or kind of artist, might, would do you think that might also do well, the that, same? Matt, the thing is, we've been around long enough. Like, you know, these are the things that people talk about all the time. Informally, yeah. the artists will say to you and judges on panels will say to you, you know what, we wanted to choose this person and they were upset about it or we chose this person and they were upset about it. And it's not any one type of artist. Obviously, every organisation has a different set of criteria, right? And in some ways, that's what's being communicated by who wins. Um, not all the time. And I'm sure there's some grey area, but, I, you know, I just wanted us to really think about this now. Like, why necessarily does this have to happen? You know, why can't, if you, if you have a competition, why not just decide who the winner is and tell them? Why do you have to have a shortlist? Like, why does the shortlist have to know? Because often what takes place as well is what people don't know is that you'll have a competition and the shortlist has to apply. So you'll have a long list and the long list of people who are long listed for the, for the award then have to go through an application process, which is what I talked about before. And in some of these competitions, you have to demonstrate this lack that I was speaking of. One of the um, uh, things, one of the, uh, let's say, competitions um, that does this is the Paul Hamlin Award. Now, I'm sure the organisation would try to distance themselves from competitions by saying they're an award. But then, you know, it's, we're just in the realm of semantics here. Like, basically, there's still people who are applying for the award and do not get it. So they're still winners and they're still losers. Essentially, the Paul Hamlin asks uh, applicants to reveal all of this information about their financial status, because in order to gain access to the award, you have to prove that you're in need of it. Now, the award is £60,000 distributed over three years. Everybody needs 60 grand <laughs> over, over three years, unless like, I don't know, you're some aristocrat or you, you have um, a, a, an independent pot of money that's cropping you up. But I would argue in this climate, you know, 60 grand over the year, over three years, is just going to just about allow someone to live in London, maybe have a studio, have a part time job and focus on their practice. You know, it's not that much money, but it has the power to change lives in a way. And uh, a couple of people who applied to this, well, m gave me um, access to their applications and the letters of response. And I was just really surprised uh, about how and invasive the application process was and how dismissive and insensitive the letter of rejection was at the end that's but one of the things they got invited didn't, didn't they get invited to go to the ceremony having yeah been, i mean can you so they weren't even in a short list really they were rejected and then invited to come and clap along happily i mean I, I, that is insane i thought the insensitive the levels of insensitivity and like uh human to human ob obliviousness were were unprecedented for me i thought that's it if i was if i stood between an artist and sixty thousand pounds and at the end of it i had to send them an email telling them that they didn't get it the last thing i'd do is to then say to them why don't you come to the ceremony where you're going to see who did win it i mean it's, that's what i'm saying it's about this thing of um you're supposed to then internalize 
the emotion, the emotional distress that you're going to feel. And one of the things that someone said to me uh, who had applied was that this took place over an entire summer. You know, so so yeah. the 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 application. So once they submitted um, their application uh, for the award, it was an entire summer before they found out if they got it or hadn't. Like why? Why take this long and why have some? It's a kind of torture. You're essentially having an artist live their life, watching things get more difficult for them feasibly because that's what's happening for everybody in the UK with the cost of living crisis and the, and the economic climate, social climate post Brexit. Thinking maybe my life's going to be changed by this award. Maybe something's going to happen. Maybe I'll just hold out for this. And then at the end of it, they don't get it. Yeah. Like just why don't, why don't they deliberate over a weekend? You know, these things don't take, you know, basically we just need to really examine these two things or at least speak back to institutions and say to them, the things that you think that you're doing, this kind of, um, this sort of Olympian benevolence you feel you're bestowing on the field isn't as caring as you're projecting it to be. And it's actually as like, cruel and bureaucratically indifferent as I would argue the sort of wind rush scandal you know that thing where people's landing cards were destroyed and they were told they had to leave England even though they had children here you know it's the same sort of cruelty it's just like mm. bad news being given to you through the form of a letter or an email where you're saying I'm sorry it's too bad you didn't get it well I, I, now, I think some people don't apply for things to avoid this rejection in the end don't they so you you know, you exclude people by by the process. Yeah, and I, and I was also saying, you know, for me, it's kind of an odd article to write because I'm an artist and I make work, and I felt I, it's, it's strange because my in my like the time I've spent as a critic, so writing for say like uh, thirteen years now, I think I've moved into making uh, moving image work in the past five or six, and it was interesting to feel how suddenly I felt like the, the the legitimacy of what I was saying could be questioned because someone could say, well, you're just an artist. You're just upset <laughs> at, 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 at um, what you may not be able to get. And it was, it was kind of interesting because it made me feel like, you know, I know that a lot of artists are afraid to say things. You know, they're afraid. I know that artists have been in positions where they've gone to dinners or they've gone to events after being rejected because they're just hoping to, to remain gain in the good graces of the organization yeah gain just, something yeah it's so it's uh it's um i i got I short think, yeah, for the i got i got i got it, um, nominated for the paul hamlin but i didn't go when i got rejected <laughs> yeah i mean like why why would you <laughs> why would you go why would yeah, you, but I, I wasn't but in a huff no, about it but i just thought well i couldn't see the point really but maybe but, i but also the the the, the other thing about this all is to say, what is it that they're trying to do? What is it that these awards and prizes are set up to do? And in this, if we had this moment where uh, during the pandemic, they decided to distribute uh, the funding more evenly spread across people because they'd recognised that these were unprecedented moments and people were under like serious, like uh, emotional, psychological pressure and stress. How is that any different from now? We're still living in moments that are really difficult and straight and there's wars happening. The pandemic is still sort of in the air. You know, uh, it's, it's it's harder to find places to live than ever before. There's hardly any money available to, li to live off. Uh, the benefits aren't really there. You know, why? How is this back to normal? <laughs> and, and why does this why? does the conditions that we're living under not warrant some reassessment of the application process itself? Maybe we can't, like I say, we can't maybe do away with them, but at least let's think about this criteria of having to demonstrate lack all the time. I thought your idea, I think, did you not say at some point that really in a way some, it would be better to perhaps give out some smaller grants. So if they've got, if they've got a pot of money, they could reduce the amount they give, but give to more. Is that a yeah, I think so, because I think the Paul Hamlin uh, during the one pandemic year, they instead of giving 60,000 to I can't remember if it's five or six artists, mm. they gave 10,000 pounds to, I think, over 40 artists. Now, if yeah. they did that every year, that would equal a more level and equitable, a more level and sort of democratic field, I would imagine. And I think, so. I think enough money to make a difference to people. 
and enough money to make a huge difference. And the thing is, it's the same with film festivals. That's what I was discussing when I was talking about uh, op the uh, uh, Open City Documentary Film Festival is that they got rid of the, the prizes and, you know, but they pay every filmmaker who's showing. So if every festival paid every filmmaker and didn't have these prizes, then there'd be enough small pockets of money to equal a decent wage. That is freelance living. The, the, when you work freelance, you're basically doing many, many different jobs for small bits of money. And eventually, hopefully at the end of it, it adds up to a type of salary, you know? So hopefully. I think maybe, yeah, hopefully, but maybe it's just time for us to do away with this like huge, uh, like uh, um, uh, divine intervention sums of money that are being conferred to people uh, by, by organizations. I, I, and we haven't got to the level of the things in America where people are getting like $800,000, which is just insane. Like, why should one person ever have that amount of money? Just it, that's that's crazy. Yeah, I agree. And My jaw drops when I see those numbers. You do you do wonder why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's, it's quite simple. We've got the, the UK is a small place. There's not that many people functioning as professionals in the art world. Spreading why a bit you... of money. <laughs> If you were given eight hundred thousand pounds, well, you could then give it out in the way you wanted to give it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's true, but it's almost strange to to then put that pressure on someone to put yeah, that pressure on I'm, an individual. I'm not sure. Yeah, but you know what I mean. It's a it's a weird. Um, it's easy to get it wrong. I think you've made that quite clear. <laughs> yeah, like why why make a Bill Gates? Uh, Listen, because of time, and I'm sorry, because I, I know that there's more in the feature, but I, we encourage people to read the feature which, as I said, is in the March issue 2023. C can we move on to your review in the same issue, which we can't give a lot of time to, but it was about, um, it's a different thing, but it was about access for people to do something that they wouldn't normally have access to, um, which shows a sort of vague link across, perhaps, the, the shirt Raven Row. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I suppose that is quite a good link. I hadn't thought about it, but... Um... So the show at Raven Row is called People Make Television. And essentially, it's a, uh, a, it's a moving image show of programmes made by something called the Community Programme Unit at the BBC, specifically this television series called Open Door. And Open Door was an, uh, I, think, I think it was an hour long documentary series where people could uh, write in to the BBC and ask for the opportunity to make a programme about a specific campaign that they were focusing on or a specific uh, social, cultural, economic issue that they wanted to draw attention to. So that was, a, that was the, the CPU, the Community Programme Unit's uh, product. That was in the, seven, the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, 1972. So yeah, in, up, in, up into the 80s as well. And then uh, you also had a collection of programmes made by uh, sort of regional cable television uh, stations that were on a couple of different floors. So you had... Um, the the open door programs on the ground floor, I think, and these other uh, stations on the second and third floors of at, at uh, Raven Row. At Raven Row, yeah, 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 yeah. But but you you did just to cut to the chase because you you do have some uh, criticism. Basically, it was a massive. It was the archive being shown? I thought shown very well in terms of technically and and the way you could sort of you, know, you could sit in front of a TV and there'd be a selection of say. 10 videos on that one TV that just played over through the 10, or you could go somewhere else and then select to watch them, the ones you wanted to watch in other places. And there was cable TV showing as well. You yeah, have... yeah, you know, like I, I suppose it just depends on what this always comes back to what the duty of the critic is, really. I don't really like to think of myself as a critic. I just like, you know, I'm a, a thinking person who's walking around looking at cultural production and mm. has things to say about it, you know. And um, and the thing is, like, on one level, you can experience exhibition as like a nice archival show. That is definitely the case. But also, if you're trying to hold it to some sort of uh, account, rigor a rigorous account, then it is failing. And uh, it's failing um, in terms of, like, the politics. I just think it's important to draw attention to these things. Because if we don't, then like progress is just never no, going to be made. Please do, please do it, because it's that's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, basically, uh, um, I was arguing that although it's like a, a archivally interesting show, um, what they essentially do is leave the politics of the programs at the door. So these programs are all made by, as I mentioned before, 
specifically with Open Door, I won't focus so much on the other programs, but for Open Door, it was like um, groups talking about gentrification. There was one by an Irish organization that were looking at the Divis uh, housing, uh, housing. So at the Divis council estate in, uh, I think, Northern Ireland. And it was at a time where the, these places were in such states of disrepair. People were living with damp. Children were having problem with, problems with their lungs. You know, the buildings themselves are falling apart. And they were drawing attention to things that were really, really uh, affecting people's qualities of life. And I, I feel these things are still happening today. Um, they haven't disappeared. They're not like, uh, they're not just archival. They don't exist as like uh, archival. The, is the issues are not archival. The, the, the issues are not archival. And I felt it was a huge missed opportunity to exhume all of these programs and display them uh, and then not make that link between what's happening then and now. Because the programs weren't made for aesthetic reasons. They weren't made to satisfy academic curiosity. They're made to draw attention to things that are affecting people's lives. So, you know, not necessarily just negatively, but people also talking about things from a positive angle. But the idea was that it was community focused. Now, that's one of the things that has disappeared recently. And one of the reasons why it's disappeared is because people have less and less money to set up independent organizations, to do things charitably for themselves and to function outside of the establishment uh, order of doing things. So this, this notion of community itself almost exists as a type of curiosity to be like poured over and looked at and and like drawn up at will via the like the well-installed TVs that were in Raven Row. And I just felt that maybe it's time for us to, to we, it's hard to just um, be pleased that we've got these films to look at and just really acknowledge where has this gone? Where's this energy gone? Why is it not here? Yeah. And I, I, in I, some ways, you're gone. You know, I was going to say, sorry, Derek, I agree with you. There is a, because of multi, the, 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 you say there's easy access to cameras now and people can make things more easily. The, the, the thing is, there's so many, so much potential to, and stuff is made that goes on to things like YouTube that there's no concentration. This is what I was thinking on, on, you know, where would you go for looking at community? issue programs now even if they were on youtube which i think one of the cable channels still does produce things and they put them on youtube but they don't have probably have a budget to promote them so no one knows they're there things yeah like i that, mean things like that I, I you know i wonder if anyone knew that these programs were there back in the day because they were on such, such, such uh, they weren't yeah. so late at night you know but it, it, it well they were it, probably they saw them more than you think because there was only three channels and it was you know but but I agree that, that there is that there's always that issue as well. One thing that they are doing, Romeo, which I don't think you might not have known when you did, did a review, but I'm not sure, was that they're doing two seminar sort of events where they are talking about the legacy and 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 what might that implies to me that they are planning to have a, some conversations about. Yeah, I mean, where I, this I could see, go now. I, I I did see that, but you know, a couple of seminars is not really enough, is it? And, and no, no, sort of, it's um, not in the exhibition. I agree, it's not part yeah, of, the and, of the and, show. And like, like I say, anyone who goes to see it, you you just see it. It's like it's um hardly any thoughts really gone into it. You know, it's basically like any other media tech that you go in in like some sort of cultural organization. They've got a room full of tellies, and like you can access uh, different programs. You know, it's yeah. it's basically it's like, like a library. Having... It's almost like a library. Yeah, but no, like nobody's a... saying look there for this reason or so. So basically, you're like, what is the point in curating? What is curating? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, uh, one, well, one, you're one... implying you're implying that the idea is that the curating would be something which makes people think in a direction that they wouldn't have thought in otherwise. Maybe. Well, isn't it isn't it about like sort of highlighting certain aspects of yeah. uh, of, of this uh, this moment, this period that are going to be missed? Even if it's an archival show, people don't just whack a load of stuff on tellies, do they? And like, but you just sit in front of it and and scan scan it through. No, because I mean, I, I mean, like it, it's basic. Even if I was say, if you were doing this, you could also have a space where there was like maybe four or five uh, films that were showing on a larger screen that had like more information about those films and the debates in it pulled out from the film itself. Yeah, there there were documentation. On that point, there were some programmes which were analysing the, the, where they analysed themselves. So the, the producers and, and, and um, sort of editors and, and people who actually worked with the communities making the programmes there was a couple of programs where they were analysing themselves and they were being actually quite negatively 
negative about their own. So the Milton Keynes cable TV one, there was a program which actually did say, you know, but they weren't highlighted, although they were on one TV downstairs. But, but I, I'm not criticizing, c- contradicting what you're saying. It, it was really hard to find. You had to dig out, dig them out. It was just basically quite remiss, you know, like it's about even if you do an archive, you've got to have some kind of interpretation, not just a couple of wall panels that are, being, that are just giving you historical, you know, yeah. historical information. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the gold standard is re- the real estate exhibition that Pierre staged in the middle of the 2010s, where it was like, you know, that's how you do uh, an, an exhibition that engages with like community politics. You don't do it by just having this weird dead archival space where people are free to peruse material on televisions. That's not, I, I, I would say that's not, I'm, I suppose it's curating, but it's creating it as like um, most basic level. I don't know. I just felt like these. It was fine. It, it, say, I, say the name of the show at Pier, at Pier one more time. Uh, that was, the show was called Real Estates. But, yeah. you know, I, it's like I say at the end of the article, but I, uh, at the end of the article, I just break it down like this. It's like for some, this comprehensive and academically competent look at a type of community TV will no doubt satisfy a formal or historical research interest. That's that's what one side of people, yeah. For the others, it could well be another depressing example of how far some exhibitions in the capital still are from doing justice to the communities whose expressions they are now seeking to exhibit. But also, we have to ask ourselves these questions about how. <laughs> This is an organisation run by Alex Sainsbury who comes from like an aristocratic background. No disrespect to him, it's fine. Money, it's not, you can have money, it's no problem. But I'm like, is this a final indignity that the programmes that these people have birthed, some of the discourses and issues are still pertinent today and that the final destination of them in some ways is in, the next, in, is in a gallery run by someone who's got tonnes of money and is not really that bothered about exhuming what's happening with these with people today. I mean, I, I maybe... I feel a little bit like I'm sort of rambling a bit because we've been talking for nearly an hour. <laughs> but like, you know, we, 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 everything is sometimes I get frustrated with the sort of gentility that prevails the sector, you know, that pervades, not pervades, that pervades yeah. the sector. We come into an institution that's a converted Georgian space in a really, in a, a part of London that's been gentrified and arguably the gallery exists there because it's part of that gentrification or it's at least riding the wave of it. But none of this is being tackled in the exhibition, and we're supposed to present pretend as if this doesn't exist, or as if this, or as, as if this isn't such a kind of glaring architectural fact that we're inhabiting when we're looking at the work, when we're looking at the the previous uh, products of this like uh, CPU initiative and the Open Door documentary series. So yeah, I mean like. Um, it depends how you look at things, really. If, if it's OK with you, then it'll be a nice show. But if you're concerned about such things, then you'll, you'll have a feeling of discomfort when you're walking through its space. Well, I hope people go and make their own decision about it. I, I'm, I, I don't disagree with you at all. And I do hope that it is the beginning, at least, and I underline the word at least, of some conversation about, about where people can have more space to to air views and issues and problems publicly like that seemed to do at that time you know i mean basically but the thing is matt they, they can do it on the bbc the, but the bbc does not have the will or the appetite to do it and i and like i i know because i used to work for the bbc i've yeah, had yeah. conversations with people about it i've said why don't you just give people a camera and let them make a program themselves no I've even suggested, like, why why can't we do things that, you know, do it at 12 o'clock at night when no one's watching? Why not? There's just not the appetite for it. That is really it also isn't. that their, their, their remit is so, has changed and it's a bit, now they're more, you know, they have balance is so, so heavy on them to be balanced that they fear that they will, you know, you know, say, it, it, is uh, it something to do with that? Yeah, on that's. That is the perception that gets filtered out into the general public that we then have to grapple with these terms of a debate that I would argue probably doesn't really exist. And the fact of the matter is, if they want to do a programme, they create the appetite for the programme. And I was explaining that by drawing attention to this re- restaging, reimagining of Kenneth Clark's civilizations. Nobody was asking for this programme. Nobody was looking for this programme. There was no appetite for it. 
But they decided they wanted to make it and therefore drummed up the atmosphere that they could argue like preceded their decision to make the program. What was the atmosphere? A feature in The Guardian and an exhibition profile of Kenneth Clark staged by Tate Britain. And I was at the launch. I was at this launch um, it, at BBC, at uh, uh, television set, uh, um, at BBC in the Ox- Oxford Street. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, yeah. It is, and like where um, the, 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 the head of the BBC at the time, Tony something, I can't remember his name, was explaining how there was going to be this new emphasis on culture. That was going to be this new thing in the BBC and that uh, the BBC was going to be focusing on arts and culture more than it had ever before. And one of the examples was this thing or this new emphasis on Kenneth Clark civilizations. And they had the Guardian and they had the tape there and they were all stood there talking about this. And I was sat in the audience thinking, this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, and that was like, when was that? That was uh, probably 20, 2016, 17, something like that. And, you know, that new age of cultural focused programming just hasn't arrived. And I, I, I don't know why it's there, but the BBC certainly in a position, like I say, to create appetite if they want to. Nobody asked for Kenneth Clark civilizations headed by Mary Beard, <laughs> but it <laughs> happened. Listen, it's been great talking to you again. I really appreciate your time and energy. Um, listeners, you've been hearing Morgan Quaintance talking about his texts in the March issue 2023 of Art Monthly. Please subscribe to Art Monthly and or buy the magazine and read it all but including Morgan's texts. Morgan thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Art Monthly talk show on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can listen to the full archive of the Art Monthly talk show on the events page on the Art Monthly website www.artmonthly.co.uk You can also subscribe to the magazine on the buy page of the Art Monthly website and there are basically two options. One is for a print subscription and one is for a digital subscription. The digital gives you access to the entire archive of Art Monthly going back to 1976 and there are currently 464 issues to look at. Alternatively, you can do just a print subscription and receive the paper copy in the post to your home But you can also do both. And there's an offer on having a print and digital subscription, which is the best of both worlds, because then you can search the archive, carry the magazine around with you or dip into it whenever you like online. Thank you so much for listening. And we do hope to have you as our audience again in the future. Goodbye.
You can also listen to it on the Art Monthly website, www.artmonthly.co.uk. You go to the events page and there's an archive of all the programmes we've ever made there. You can also get the Art Monthly talk show on your podcast app. We hope you will subscribe to Art Monthly, which you can do by going to the Buy page on Art Monthly's website. There are various options from direct debit, which is the cheapest version, and then there are once a year only options, there are institutional options, and there's also a digital subscription where you have access to the entire archive of Art Monthly going back to 1976. And you can guess by the number of this issue, which is 464, there are currently 464 issues to look at. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it and hope you'll join us again.